0: Your taste buds are gonna come alive when you start living this lifestyle, but you gotta address the root cause. Then you become empowered. So we're not just telling people what to do. I'll just go eat this food and like, you'll be fine. We're like, no, let me educate you. Let Let me help you understand. So you can say, okay, wow, when I'm reducing these high fat foods, okay, what's actually happening inside my cell, which Dr. Barnard has been talking about for many, many years now. And when you understand that biochemistry, which Cyrus is a genius at explaining through all his research, then you become empowered in in the decisions that you make because you really understand it and that's empowering.
1: Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. So hello to all of the Exam Roomies listening in Japan, in Guatemala, Jamaica, and Sri Lanka. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 96 of season four, number 291 overall. And today, in honor of National Diabetes Month, we are going to be doing a special doctor's mailbag with Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero from Mastering Diabetes. Both of these gentlemen are actually living with the type 1 form of the disease, but they have taken control of their health by putting the focus on food, and they are rethinking the traditional approach to treating diabetes and instead focusing on a whole food plant based approach, which there is increasing amounts of data showing that it can be one of the most beneficial and effective courses of action that anyone living with diabetes can partake in. And with type two, you may even be able to reverse it. And that comes at a time when an estimated 13% of all adults in the United States have diabetes, a number that is only expected to climb as the standard American high fat diet continues to penetrate more and more and more households. So let's see today if we can't offer up some help to that 13 percent and then maybe even put up a force field around everyone else and prevent diabetes from even affecting their life. And who knows, you may even hear something that piques your interest because it could help someone in your life. There are a lot of good questions in the doctor's mailbag, including what are the best vegetables that can help prevent diabetes and fight diabetes. And how many carbs should someone who has diabetes be eating every day? Are carbs the enemy? It's always a hotly debated topic and we are not afraid to dive right into it. And then how many times have you heard this, right? A little bit won't hurt. Well, today we're gonna find out if no harm is being done or whether that little bit won't hurt is just an old wives tale that and a lot more coming your way so let's get going right now and raise our health iqs together and master diabetes with dr cyrus Kambata and robbie barbero gentlemen welcome back to the program thank you both so very much for
2: being here chuck it's always a pleasure to be here with you thanks for uh, inviting us back we uh we, we love talking with you and we love doing We love doing this work no it's
0: great. It's always great to see you, Chuck. Your smiling face, your incredible outfit. So if somebody's only <laughs> listening to this, they got to go watch the video as well, just so they can see your outfit for the day.
1: And here's where I mentioned that there is a link to our YouTube channel in the episode notes. Uh, all right, gentlemen. So it is National Diabetes Month. We could sit here and talk fashion all day, but we have a lot of questions from listeners who have uh, written and a lot of whom actually are living with diabetes, but they've heard about the benefits that can come with changing their diet. And rethinking the way that they eat. So you two have the knowledge that they hope to acquire. So what do you say we open up the diabetes mailbag and get them some answers? You up for it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go. All right. Uh, Robbie, I'm going to start with you, my man, uh, because I think that uh, it's been a while since you've been on the show. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Cyrus uh, a number of occasions, but you, you not so often. So I'm glad that you're here. So you get first dibs here. Let's go. Comes to us from Mike. Mike writes, I've been diabetic for 15 years. How much can a plant-based diet help me after all of that time?
0: Okay. So I assume at this point, we're talking about somebody who's likely living with type two diabetes. So let's assume that's the case. 15 years. Now, one thing we talk about a lot at Mastering Diabetes is understanding how much insulin your pancreas is still producing. So that's going to be a big question for asking yourself, are you going to be able to fully reverse type two diabetes? Like Chuck mentioned in the beginning of the show, that's possible. Or Maybe you might still need a little bit of medication, a little bit of insulin. That's okay. So in our book, we distinguish between insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes and non-insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. So you can get a C-peptide test, C-peptide. You can get that at any standard lab. It's a quite inexpensive test. Your doctor can order it for you. You can get it online, purchase it yourself, and then just go and get the test done even if your doctor doesn't write the prescription. But this C-peptide test, Will tell you how much insulin your pancreas is still secreting. Okay, and once you get that information, you can decide. Okay, I have enough. It's it's in a, a higher than normal amount. Then I'm going to go and I'm going to follow this diet 100%. And I'm going to completely reverse this condition because I have enough being produced. So at that point, all you're trying to do is maximize your insulin sensitivity so that insulin your that's produced inside your own body becomes as functional as possible. And you don't have type two diabetes anymore because the root cause is insulin resistance. Now, if we take it beyond just talking about complete reversal, how about the overall benefits? Let's say you're living with insulin dependent type two and you still need to use a little bit of medication. That's okay because now following a plant-based diet where you maximize your insulin sensitivity, you're gonna improve your quality of life right now. You're gonna make it, it's far easier to lose weight you're going to have more energy, more mental clarity, you're going to feel good. So that's in the short term. And the long term, you're going to reduce your risk of all the long term conditions that are associated with diabetes. The number one killer for people living with all forms of diabetes is heart disease. So you're following a plant based diet, that's a diet shown to prevent and reverse heart disease, you're going to reduce your risk of cancer, of fatty liver disease of developing high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and also, Alzheimer's disease. So, the plant based diet is going to be beneficial no matter what your insulin level being produced is. So, you're going to want to go for it. Doesn't matter how long you've been diagnosed, it's still the right move to make.
1: That is a really positive answer, my man. I love the fact that you're offering hope to people who feel like it has been just too long and they're trapped. And no matter what they do, nothing could possibly help them, but that is a fantastic answer. And I really hope that people keep that in mind, not just for diabetes, but I mean, the same goes for so many of these chronic health conditions that we talk about all the time here on the show. I mean, bottom line, it is never too late. I'll, t- I'll tell you guys. You know, uh, I was speaking with a friend of mine who was talking about his 98 year old mother in law who adopted a plant based diet, had been sedentary for years, sitting in a wheelchair, and now she's able to get up and walk a mile a day at the very least. And she just she got her life back at 98 years old. And I'm not trying to preach uh, anything on anybody. I'm just stating a fact. When you hear something like that. Like that to me is just mind blowing. So never, ever, ever give up hope. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah. Dr. Kambada Cyrus, my man. This one comes to us from Laura. Laura writes, my blood sugar went up after I started to eat a vegan diet. How long will it take for my body to adjust and for those levels to come back down? Okay. This is a phenomenal question.
2: Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we talk about here at Mastering Diabetes is the fact that just like Robbie said, when you transition towards eating a plant-based diet, which can, can be vegan if you want it to be vegan, effectively being you know 100% plant-based, um, or you could just sort of like migrate towards eating more plants and still have a little bit of animal products. The, the, the main point here is that when you do that, you're bound to see a significant improvement in your overall health and a lowered, decreased overall chronic disease risk. So just like Robbie said, lower your risk for heart disease, fatty liver disease, cancer, uh, high cholesterol, uh, hypertension, lower your risk for pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and lower your risk for Alzheimer's disease. But here's the thing. When you transition to a plant-based diet specifically to lower your blood glucose, it's very important that you not only eat more plants, but in addition to eating more plants, you also have to control the total amount of dietary fat that comes into your mouth. So in other words, all plant-based diets are not created equal. Uh, you, could eat, you could be eating a plant-based diet that, as an example, is centered around foods like avocados and nuts and seeds, maybe has some olive oil in it, uh, maybe some coconuts. And then also, in addition to that, has things like potatoes and, and beans and lentils, and maybe a small amount of fruit. If you do that, what you're likely to find is that your blood glucose is, is challenging to control. And the reason for that is because the avocado, the nuts, the seeds, the coconuts, the oil... Those are very fat rich. And as a result of being fat rich, it actually makes it so that when you do eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like a potato or like a banana, those carbohydrates can't really be metabolized properly because the presence of that dietary fat is actually inhibiting insulin action. So what we teach people here and what the research has been showing for almost 100 years at this point is that when you migrate to a plant-based diet, the most important thing that you can do specifically to lower your blood glucose is also lower your total fat intake. So what we recommend people here do at, you know, within our coaching program and beyond is to get your total fat intake to be approximately 30 grams per day or less. And if you can lower your total fat intake to approximately 30 grams a day per, or less, then what you do is you gain carbohydrate tolerance, aka you gain the ability to eat larger quantities of carbohydrate-rich foods, and your blood glucose is likely to come down at the same time. So really understanding that fat and insulin are connected to each other. The more fat you eat, the more insulin resistant you become, the less fat you eat, the less insulin resistant you become. That's really one of the sort of like major epiphanies that people have when they first learn about our method. And that's one of the things that's the simplest thing that you can do to get control of your blood glucose very quickly. Oh, and that brings us
1: to our next question, Robbie. And this is a good one. Boy, does it play right off of what Cyrus was just saying. This one comes to us from Julia. Julia wants to know, is the keto diet good for diabetes?
0: Okay, Chuck, this is a great question. It's a very timely question. This is a hot topic. And first off, I just want to say that everybody out there doing keto, some people are doing a plant-based keto, some people are doing animal-based keto, like... We all have a lot more in common than we don't have in common. So you're doing that, like you're putting in a lot of effort. You are cutting out um, a lot of foods that you know are unhealthy. You're probably not you know, going to fast food restaurants anymore, and you're really trying. So kudos, like we're, we're all like in this together. But when it comes to maximizing your insulin sensitivity, or another way to talk about this is maximizing your glucose tolerance. The best way to do that is to follow a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet. So ketogenic diets are high in fat and also high in protein, okay? So I personally followed a plant-based ketogenic diet before that was even a term. So I ate majority of my calories from nuts and seeds, from olive oil, and I ate a lot of greens as well on this plant-based ketogenic diet. And I had celery, I had a little bit of lettuce, but I had to be careful. You couldn't have too many bell peppers because that's too high in carbohydrate. And so as a person living with type 1 diabetes, I was able to monitor how much insulin am I injecting? How, what's my, how's my blood glucose responding? And for sure, like we understand at Mastering Diabetes why this topic is so confusing, And chapter seven of our book is one of our our favorite chapters. We put the most amount of research into that specific chapter. And we went into depth about the research that's being cited to back up ketogenic diets. And long story short, it's about short-term benefits. So you will see a flat-line blood glucose. You can reduce your diabetes medications. You can reduce the amount of insulin that you need. You can lose weight, which then... You'll see benefits in your, maybe your cholesterol, maybe your blood pressure. You see a lot of benefits because you're losing weight, but these are short-term benefits. And what we're about here at Mastering Diabetes is short-term benefits and long-term benefits. We want the best of both worlds. So when you're doing a ketogenic diet, you are actually eating yourself into a state of more glucose tolerance intolerance okay you're becoming less insulin sensitive because like cyrus was alluding to you're consuming too much fat which is blocking insulin from working properly so just because you've removed the carbohydrates doesn't mean you've become more insulin sensitive i like to think of a simple analogy okay let's pretend you were a terrible driver okay every time you get in the car <laughs> you get in the car accidents you get speeding tickets you're just bad at driving all right but if we took away your driver's license- whoa, 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 no we name. don't
2: need to talk about my driving habits here. <laughs>
0: <honestly>. <laughs> no, no names are being mentioned here. <laughs> but you're, 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 getting it, you're a bad driver, okay? We take away your license, all right? You don't get in accidents anymore. You don't get in speeding tickets. Like, nothing is going wrong. But we didn't solve the problem. Like, we haven't taught you how to become a better driver. We haven't taught you how to be safe on the road. So as a matter of fact, in this case, when you do start driving again, you're probably going to be worse. You're you're rusty. Nobody taught you anything. And that's exactly what happens when you're removing carbohydrates. So you're not seeing blood glucose elevations because you're not eating carbohydrate energy. And then once you do, you see these big spikes and then you blame the mango, you blame the potato. But that's because you became more insulin resistant. So for me personally, I... You know, long story short, I, you can use fancy softwares like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal, and you can calculate how much glucose you're consuming at any given meal or during any given day. And so, when I was following a plant-based ketogenic diet, I would need one unit of insulin for one gram of glucose, one-to-one ratio. Then, once I adopted a lo- to a low-fat, plant-based whole food diet, I can now use one unit of insulin for ten grams of glucose. This means I'm removing the fiber, I'm removing the fructose. That is a 900% change in insulin sensitivity. And that's what we want for people living with all forms of diabetes. You want to prevent or reverse prediabetes? you maximize your insulin sensitivity. You want to reverse type 2 diabetes if you're producing enough insulin, you want to maximize your insulin sensitivity. You want to prevent all those long-term chronic conditions we were just talking about, you want to maximize your insulin sensitivity. So a ketogenic diet will benefit diabetes in the short term. It will not benefit you in the long term. And it's best to follow what we're talking about here, the Mastering Diabetes Method, so you can see short-term benefits and long-term benefits.
1: There you go, man. Short and long-term. I love that. I love the fact that, I mean, my goodness gracious, you think about when people improve their health, right? They always look at it like, You know how quickly can i take the weight off and you know what's my reward going to be once i do right and that just kind of starts that vicious yo-yo dieting uh cycle that certainly is not going to be good for diabetes weight loss any sort of disease here that we talk about on the program either so the fact that you're talking about sustained changes here is fantastic good analogy by the way i'm sorry that it came at cyrus's expense (laughs) um (laughs) Cyrus, let's come to you. Uh, interesting one from Sam here. Sam is new to this, had uh, had her interest piqued in this. I believe she picked up Dr. Barnard's book here. She's wondering, are there any fruits that people with diabetes cannot
2: eat? Ooh, great question. Okay, so here's my answer. The answer is uh, no. Uh, people with diabetes can, and uh, use the word should in air quotes, right? We recommend... That you eat uh, every fruit that you can get your hand on, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this with one caveat: it is only possible to be consuming larger quantities of fruits. When I say larger, I mean more than just berries, because the 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 typical diabetes world tells you fruit is bad for you. Fruit's gonna metabolize to sugar. It's gonna raise your blood sugar. It's gonna cause your insulin. It's gonna cause your pancreas to secrete too much insulin, and and all of that physiology only is true if you already are insulin resistant to begin with so what we recommend doing is is increasing the diversity of the fruits that you're eating from berries to adding anything that you want pears peaches papayas mangoes um give me some more fruits here watermelon grapes oranges (laughs) you name it all of the fruits that you can possibly think of right you go to the the produce section in the grocery store uh literally any fruit that you can see is is a green light option but Again, the only way that you're going to be able to eat these fruits and maintain your blood glucose control or get better blood glucose control is to lower your total fat content. And I know sometimes I kind of sound like a broken record when I say this, but this is something that I think a lot of people don't really fully understand. So first thing is what I would recommend doing is, uh, using chronometer, just like Robbie said, or chronometer, it's a diet logging app and just getting a handle on how much total fat you eat, because most people believe that they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I eat a medium-fat diet, I eat a low-fat diet. But then when they actually use an app and list every single thing they eat, they go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that I was eating 85 grams of fat per day, right? No judgment at all, but that is what we would consider to be a high-fat diet. So once you know the number, you can then make changes to your diet and lower that number by eating more legumes, more non-starchy vegetables, more whole grains, and more fruit. So by eating those foods, you will naturally suppress your total fat intake, and then as you continue to keep your fat intake low, you can then increase the diversity of the fruits and the total amount of fruits that you eat, and that right there is going to keep your blood glucose very well controlled. Again, it can even lower your fasting glucose, lower your post-meal blood glucose, and uh, you're likely to get a significant amount of not only diabetes benefits, but also benefits to lower your overall chronic disease risk at the same time.
1: Robbie, that is the perfect transition to a question that we have here from Brenda, wondering whether there are any vegetables that are better than others that uh, control blood sugar.
0: Okay, I love this question. And again, it shows somebody that's really curious they're interested, they're like digging into this, like, come on, like, I love it. But when you are looking, there's a reductionist sort of uh, mentality behind this, which is like, okay, if I just have this one specific food, this, these certain vegetables or even vegetables in general, then I'm going to be able to control my blood sugar. Like that's going to fix the problem. And here at Mastering Diabetes, we are all about addressing the root cause. So there is not going to be any magic bullet, no individual food, no individual food group is going to be the solution at you know, to help you improve your blood glucose levels until you address the root cause, the root problem. And like Cyrus was saying, we're like broken records. I'm super pumped to be a broken record for the rest of my life until the world of diabetes health like gets it and fully understands. And at least they they are aware. So like Cyrus was saying, open up an app, enter the data, and you become aware, okay? You can decide what you want to do once you have the information, but most people have no idea about how much fat they are consuming, even if it's from plant-based sources. So you have to address that root problem. And then enjoy the vegetables that you love, you know, your taste buds are going to come alive when you start living this lifestyle, you're going to get to enjoy the fruits, you're going to get to enjoy a lot of vegetables, cooked and prepared in a lot of different ways. But you got to address the root cause. Now, with that said, Chuck, there's a lot of vegetables, there's a lot of great vegetables out there. Okay, so the non starchy vegetables like bell peppers, we'll put cauliflower in there, broccoli, uh, carrots. I mean, these are fantastic. They're all going to be good because they're low in fat. They're high in fiber, high in water content, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals. They're all going to be great. Eat the ones that you enjoy.
1: How do you counter that, you know, focus on one single thing mentality? And that's just kind of as a society, the way that we look at it, right? So if we think that there's one solution, then we don't have to change a lifetime of bad behavior because that one solution is going to magically fix everything. And that's been ingrained in us since we were young kids. So uh, Robbie, how, how do you at Mastering Diabetes really go and, and try to counter that messaging?
0: Yeah. I'll tell you exactly how we do it. So we do it through education and teaching people what is the root cause. I mean, that really is the key thing that we do. You heard Cyrus talking about, you heard me talking about it, but it's really, once you understand it's, it's sort of, it's going away from the sort of the, the medication mentality, which is like, oh, if I have a problem, I just go to my doctor and I take a medication. Like that'll fix the problem. Like it's, it's a one, one change and it's gone. Whereas no, we're looking okay, what is the actual root cause? And once you understand that through, through knowledge, uh, then you become empowered. So we're not just telling people what to do. I'll just go eat this food and like, you'll be fine. We're like, no, let me educate you. Let me, under, let me help you understand. So you can say, okay, wow, when I'm reducing these high fat foods, okay, what's actually happening inside my cell, which Dr. Barnard has been talking about for many, many years now. And when you understand that, that biochemistry, which Cyrus is a genius at explaining through all his research, Then, you know, you become empowered in in the decisions that you make because you really understand it. And that's, that's empowering. All right. Genius coming to you, my man. This
1: is a question from Olivia. No pressure. How many carbs per day should someone with diabetes
2: eat? (laughs) 7,000. That is a joke. Okay. So the answer to that question is, uh, it, it sort of depends on a number of different factors. Okay. Let's just start with the basics. Uh, if you are eating a ketogenic diet, which is a sort of most carbohydrate restrictive diet, uh, that exists, uh, the recommendations are to eat, uh, 30 grams of what's called net carbohydrate per day, meaning 30 grams of carbohydrate, not including fiber. Okay. So that's the sort of like base level. That's the minimum amount um, of carbohydrate. That's kind of technically possible to put into your mouth on a daily basis. If you're eating real food now, um, the next class of individuals who eat, you know, technically speaking, like low carbohydrate diets, as far as the research is concerned, eat somewhere like 75 grams of carbohydrate, sometimes as much as 100 or 150 grams of carbohydrate. All of that is considered a "quote unquote" low carbohydrate intake. Okay. What we recommend people do is if you are eating that small amount of carbohydrate, then again, I'm going to sound like a broken record for the third time. What that necessitates, what that means is that you're Total fat intake is probably greater than 50, 60, 70 grams per day. And your total protein intake is probably also greater than 60, 70, 80, maybe hundred grams uh, per day. So what I would like you to do is take your total fat intake and lower it, take your total protein and lower it and increase your carbohydrate intake. So what we recommend people do is sort of start with that low carbohydrate mentality and then increase their carbohydrate intake to something like 200 grams per day. But again, they have to be done simultaneously with each other. So more carbohydrate, less protein, less fat. So you start at 200 and all of a sudden you're probably likely, likely to see some changes in your blood glucose control. You're probably going to see a lower fasting glucose, a lower post-meal blood glucose. You might even see a lower A1C if you continue this for multiple months. From 200 increases to 250 to 300 to 350. What we, what we generally find with people is that your quote unquote average person living with diabetes who maybe you know is moderately active, trying to lose some weight, usually ends up eating somewhere between 350 and 450 grams of carbohydrate per day. Again, if your total fat intake is less than 30 grams per day. Now, if you tend to be more active or you tend to be very athletic and you like to exercise uh, you know, significantly and or if you are already at your ideal body weight, then we recommend pushing your carbohydrate intake g- north of 450 to get to 500, 600, 700 grams per day. So, I'll tell you my personal carbohydrate intake on a daily basis is greater than 700 grams per day. 700 is just sort of like a normal standard baseline for me. I'm an athletic guy. I exercise, you know, once a day for approximately one hour. But I'm also pretty meticulous about making sure that my total fat intake is less than 30 grams per day. And I'm eating the largest quantity of low-fat, plant-based, whole foods that I can possibly find. And as a result of that, living with type 1 diabetes, I can control my insulin use to within one or two units per day, every single day, while keeping a very flatline blood glucose. So I'm a living example of that. Robbie's a living example of that. And thousands of people who we've sort of instructed can also get to the same point where they're eating multiple hundred grams of carbohydrate per day with improved blood glucose control.
1: All right, Robbie, coming to you for this one, that was a very scientific answer, but let's see if we can give Bobby some practical advice. And I'm sure that he is not, or she is not alone in asking this question. Bobby writes, my mom has diabetes, but my family takes the, a little bit won't hurt approach and gives her a soda or some sort of treat at least once a day. Does a little bit really matter?
0: Okay. So this is a very personal question, Chuck. So you're going to have to decide what are your goals? What matters to you? Cyrus and I like to say we're not the food police. We're not here to tell you what to do, what level of treats you want to have or whatever it is that improves your quality of life. We're here to inspire you, to educate you, to show you the possibilities to take your health to the highest level possible. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of research showing that in certain areas, you know, whether it's like an egg a day or, you know, which could be in some of these treats that you're consuming and depending on what they are, but small amounts can, can increase your chances of some serious con- consequences down the road. So it's a, it's a tough question because, you know, we're not all trying to make people feel like they have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely perfect. Otherwise you can't succeed and you can't reach your goals. It's really more about what you are doing the majority of your, your time and when you're eating, even when it comes to activity, like what are you doing at large? That's most important and not getting too lost in little bit of details here or there, like little treats here, there, and you're not perfect. Like that's okay. But you know, there are some things that are worse than others And it's still worthwhile to explore, you know, maybe you don't want to have, you know, the A plus foods at every meal, every day, you know, what are some better B options rather than, you know, drinking, you know, some sort of regular soda. Like there's even modern sodas, like cleaner sodas that are made out there, um, or even having, you know, sparkling water or something like that. Like trying to continue to make, you know, good, better, best decisions can help you reach your goals. But again, each person's goal is unique. It's unique to you. What, what matters to you, what improves your quality of life and surrounding yourself with people who are going to uplift you to do better and better and better is one of the best things you can do rather than being around people who are like, Oh, making you try and like feel bad because you're not, you know, drinking soda with them or having beer or whatever it is. Uh, You want to make some conscious choices about who you put in your life and try and, you know, be around people that uplift you.
1: Well, let's stick with you here and take a follow-up from Michelle, and she's wondering, can diet soda actually raise blood sugar, even though
0: there is no technical sugar in there? So, can diet soda raise your blood sugar? Part of the problem here is when you are having processed food, when you're having these drinks or any meals which have these added flavor agents, one of the biggest consequences that people often don't think about is how that is going to alter your experience with whole natural foods so even something like stevia okay when you're putting that in your food you're this it's hyper it's like hyper sweet and it's it's not natural it's not something that you would get in nature that you're not designed to eat that and so you are designed to have fruits like a mango from a tree or an apple or a pear. Okay. And so the amount of the level of sweetness in those foods are supposed to be satisfying. But when you live in this modern world and you're having these hyper, hyper satisfying foods, you then lose your ability to enjoy the natural flavors in healthy foods. So that's one consequence of of these, you know, drinks. Um, can I add others. to that as well? Yeah,
2: by all means, by all means. Okay, cool, cool. So we've actually written about this in the past. I just had to dig up the uh, the actual article. So um, we know, as a scientific community, that the consumption of what are referred to as sugar sweetened beverages, which are generally you know sodas that contain natural or uh, refined sweeteners, um, have become extremely common, and um, they're very easy to get your hands on. They're very inexpensive. We know that they contribute to things like weight gain, obesity and type two diabetes. There's no question about that, right? Now diet sodas are marketed as being, you know, safer and like diabetic friendly and even weight loss friendly. But if you actually take a look at the research, what you'll find is that uh, studies have found that, that even what are, they, what are considered zero calorie sweeteners that they put inside of these uh, diet sodas, um, they actually negatively impact your insulin sensitivity, AKA they make insulin less effective in your body, which uh, trust me, you do not want, right? Um, there's a study found at Purdue University showed that diet soda may actually stimulate insulin production, even though, again, they're using uh, zero calorie sweeteners, which, uh, you know, when you increase your insulin production, that can increase your risk for things like high cholesterol, as well as type 2 diabetes and central obesity. So, um the, 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 uh, even though, you know, diet sodas are sort of marketed as being healthier. The truth is that from a physiological perspective, they're not necessarily right. The last thing I'll say here is that researchers, uh, in diabetes care have published a, uh, a study where they found that one daily serving of diet soda containing about 12 ounces of soda correlated with a 36% increased greater chance of developing the metabolic syndrome, which is a whole constellation of metabolic problems and a 67% greater chance of developing type two diabetes. Again, this is from diet soda, not normal soda, right? So the answer is no, even though diet soda is marketed as being healthier, uh, we would not recommend it by any stretch of your imagination.
1: Ooh, that's some pretty interesting research right there. I'm gonna clip that one. That's definitely going up on social media. That is uh, that is a heck of an answer. Oh. Um, Robbie, you, you mentioned eggs, uh, a little bit ago, and we have a question here from Claire. Eggs obviously have cholesterol. Claire is wondering, uh, whether cholesterol can affect diabetes. She says that she eats eggs and cheese, which both,
0: as I said, have a lot of it. You know, this is Cyrus's, one of his favorite topics. I'm gonna let him take this one. Okay, is here,
2: okay, here we go. I'm going to pull up the research as we're speaking. Um, let me just dig this one up here for you. I, mean,
0: I would love to know what
1: is on your computer. The research on there just must like blow Google Scholar out of the water. I mean, it's just <laughs> got to be incredible. Everything that's on there.
2: Well, you know, the truth is that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of research about a lot of different topics, and um, I I will eventually evolve to having an encyclopedia in my brain where I'll be able to recall studies and you know cite them properly. But the truth is that sometimes <laughs> it's a little bit daunting, right? But the, t- the truth is, I guess the question is, are
0: eggs safe for people with diabetes? Is that, is that the right question?
1: Eggs and cheese. So foods that have cholesterol, a
2: lot of cholesterol. Foods that have cholesterol.
0: Okay. But cool. also more importantly, Cyrus, which I know is something you'd love to talk about, is how does the cholesterol affect diabetes? How does it affect insulin resistance? Mm,
2: yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh, we talk a lot about dietary fat as being, you know, uh, something that causes more insulin resistance aka the more dietary fat you consume the higher your risk for the development of insulin resistance which is then the the beginning the the first domino in a series of dominoes that then leads to more chronic disease whether it's diabetes cancer fatty liver disease alzheimer's disease heart disease and beyond right Um, but in addition to that there's actually studies that show that the consumption of cholesterol is also an independent risk factor meaning that cholesterol can negatively impact your insulin sensitivity aside from the effect that the diet of the dietary fat that it generally travels with. So when you consume something like white chicken or, or, or sorry, white meat or red meat, what you're consuming is actually a whole collection of nutrients that contains dietary protein, dietary fat, a small amount of carbohydrate plus dietary cholesterol. Okay. So foods that are higher in cholesterol that come mainly from the animal world are also tend to be higher in saturated fat as well. So they, they kind of, it's hard to separate the two of them, but studies have demonstrated that when you just isolate the cholesterol, the cholesterol has a negative impact on the functioning of your liver and your pancreas and your muscle tissue to make insulin a little bit less effective inside of your body. Okay. So, uh, when it comes to eggs and diabetes in particular, because this is actually a fascinating topic. Okay. Okay. Adults with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes are two to four times more likely to develop heart disease or stroke than non diabetic uh, individuals. And uh, a study in 2008 in the Physicians Health Study found that people with diabetes significantly increased their risk for what's called all cause mortality, which is death, premature death from any cause, after eating about five eggs per week. Okay, five per week, not per day. So that's not really that many eggs. And, um, two other studies involving more than 80,000 people found that eating more than six eggs per week can significantly increase your risk of cardiovascular disease in individuals who already have diabetes. Eggs are also known to contribute to arterial plaque. They can accelerate the development of what's called atherosclerosis or the hardening of blood vessels, which can then increase your blood pressure as well. So it sort of sets up this sort of, a uh, this cascade of negative effects to your cardiovascular health and to your insulin sensitivity at the same time. And finally, I'll say that Dr. Dean Ornish has done a great job of educating individuals about the fact that when you consume eggs, it significantly increases your risk for prostate cancer as well. In 1984, they published a study with 6,000 men. They followed them for 20 years to determine the risk of death from prostate cancer due to things like meat, poultry, milk, cheese, and eggs. And they found that drinking three or more glasses of milk per week increased the risk for prostate cancer by 140% and eating three or more eggs per week increased prostate cancer risk by 60%. So I don't recommend it. We don't recommend it. Uh, if, if I were in your position, I would try and minimize your consumption of eggs and dairy products, uh, to the best of your ability. And I think you are likely to find a significant improvement in your overall metabolic health. No question.
0: You know what, Cyrus? I, I, I love this topic. Um, uh, I love that section of the book. People can dig into it further. And so oftentimes I think about this a lot, Chuck, you know, I'm walking around just thinking, okay. And people are like, oh, but there's all this good research about eggs. Like, eggs can do this. Eggs can do that. And when you think about it, where there's smoke, there's fire. Okay. Like there, there is plenty of smoke around eggs and people are arguing about this all day long, but like Where is the research? Where are the meta-analyses saying that having three apples per week is going to increase your arterial plaque? Like, where is the research that's saying, you know, four potatoes per week is going to increase the risk of colon cancer? Like, the fact that there's confusion around a lot of these nutrition topics is mind-blowing to me, but here we are.
1: It goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, as far as things being ingrained in us from an early age. And we're taught at an early age that eggs are good for us. Milk is good for us. And so it just sticks with us. And it's so hard to get someone to rethink that when that's all they've known for their entire life. You two come in then, and you just shake it up like it's a magic eight ball their entire life, and you're causing them to ask all of these questions. And your magic eight ball is spitting out much healthier answers, but nonetheless, it's so counter to everything that they have been taught their entire life. So it's going to take a little bit of time for
2: people to really be able to wrap their head around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, there's a few topics in this world that are like intensely debated, you know, it's like, uh, religion, um, uh, nutrition. And there was a third one, which I'm blanking.
0: Politics. On. Gotta politics. be politics. There you
2: go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, these three subjects are like so intensely debated and they have like loyal fans that fall into multiple different camps. And then, you know, people are arguing with each other and pointing fingers at each other and saying, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. Where's your research? Where's your research? And this is what happened to me. And this is what happened to my coworker. And before you know it, the message that was originally present is gone because it's sort of uh, overshadowed by a whole bunch of like human emotion and a lot of sort of conflict. So nutrition is no different Nutrition also falls victim to the fact that there's a very clear message, and this message has been around for over 100 years. Literally, if you go back in the scientific research and you take a look at studies from the 1920s, the 1920s, when insulin was first invented, even before insulin was invented, there are plenty of uh, research uh, papers that demonstrate the relationship between specific types of foods and what is happening with insulin production and insulin sensitivity. And this information has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger over the course of time. And at this point, we know the answer. We we know the answer. We know that there's a very strong connection between dietary fat and insulin production. We know that there's a very strong connection between dietary protein and insulin production. And we know that when you transition to a diet that contains more dietary, uh, excuse me, more, more whole carbohydrate energy from fruits legumes, whole grains and starchy vegetables that your risk for all chronic diseases comes down dramatically, but yet it's still widely debated, but yet it's still very confusing, but yet the news likes to portray it in one particular way and weight loss articles like to position it in a different way. And the ketogenic diet has become this really big popular thing and it's just gotten too confusing. But if you really stick truth to the research, and really ask a simple question, which is what do we know as a scientific community? The answer is actually pretty darn clear.
1: All right, gentlemen, we only have a few minutes left, but Mm -hmm. there are some questions here that I really still want to be able to get to. You cool if we do a few of these rapid fire? Let's do it. All right, Uh, Cyrus, I'm going to stick with you for this one. This one comes to us from Evelyn, who writes, my husband is having a hard time changing his diet and giving up meat, but since meat does not have carbs or sugar, how does it impact his glucose?
2: Okay, Uh, so the answer is meat is not a safe uh, option for you living with diabetes or even if you're living with some other chronic disease just because it doesn't have carbohydrates. If you pick up the Mastering Diabetes book, we have an entire chapter devoted to this particular subject about our meat safe, our dairy product's safe. And, and the name of the chapter is called Contributing Culprits. Okay, so Contributing Culprits, I believe that it is chapter three, but I could be mistaken. Um, and in that uh, chapter, we go into a lot of detail here about what is the effect of white meat on diabetes development? What is the effect of red meat on diabetes development? What is the effect of dairy products on di- diabetes development? And the long and short of it is that the more white meat you eat and or the more red meat you eat and or the more dairy products you eat, your risk for diabetes doesn't just climb by 5%, 10%. It climbs by 30 40 60 100%. So just because it's carbohydrate, poor, does not mean that it's a green light by any stretch of the
0: imagination. Chapter five, Cyrus, chapter five. Continue chapter five, called. thank you, sir.
1: Chapter five, and and we'll drop a link to the book uh, in the episode notes or in the show description so you can pick up your copy, look at chapter five and all the other chapters, uh, quite frankly. Uh, Robbie, coming to you from Grace, what advice do you have for someone with diabetes to avoid sweets and treats and temptations during the holidays?
0: Okay, number one, learn the facts that you get to eat as much fruit as you want and start enjoying ripe, delicious fruit. Number two, take some of that fruit, put it in the freezer and put it through a machine called Yonanas. Okay. This is hashtag not sponsored, but I love the Yonanas. If they want to sponsor us, we're open to it. Uh, it's an amazing (laughs) device. You take frozen fruit, you put it through this thing and it makes like a sorbet. It's amazing. So look for new Sweets, uh, mainly again, fruits a great way to, to go here and and have fun with creating the textures and f- even frozen bananas to the yonanas. It's a game changer. And if you don't have a yonanas, you can use a food processor or a Vitamix, but learn how to enjoy fruit as a dessert.
1: Sticking with you, my man. Question from Rick: Does apple cider vinegar help with diabetes, and is it okay to drink more than just a teaspoon of it at a time? I guess he likes the flavor. I don't know.
0: <laughs> That's a special flavor. <laughs> um, so. I'm going to go back to that reductionism concept we talked about earlier. Um, The key thing is to make sure you are addressing the root cause here. So these, uh, we get asked these questions all the time, this food, that food, this food, a a little bit of these things. It's, it's really not a problem. There's actually some research showing that it can be beneficial. You'll hear other people saying, maybe it's not, but in a small quantity as a flavoring agent, drinking it, it's no problem. The, you know, the real thing here to address your blood glucose levels to reverse insulin resistance is your overall diet. Are you truly keeping it low fat, less than 30 grams per day, and you're going to be just fine and enjoy that apple cider vinegar. All right, Cyrus, let's end
1: with this one. This uh, jokes aside is probably one of the more powerful questions uh, that we've gotten during um, our time here. This is a question from Wayne. And Wayne is wondering whether there have been any studies on life expectancy for someone with diabetes versus someone who doesn't. And what if someone has reversed their diabetes? Does their life expectancy then revert to being the same as someone who
2: has never had it? It's It's a phenomenal question. This is a phenomenal question. I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth here and I'm going to say, uh, let's put it this way. Does living with diabetes, uh, decrease your risk? Uh, I'm sorry, decrease your life expectancy. The answer is yes. If you are, if your nutrition is not, um, if you're not paying attention to nutrition and you are overweight and, or your risk for many chronic diseases is increased, then The chances are that your risk for what's called all-cause mortality or premature death from any cause is elevated. Therefore, your uh, lifespan is decreased. Do I have a paper in in the top of my mind that can sort of describe that? The answer is no, not at this moment. But let's say you have diabetes and then you go through the process of transitioning your diet and all of a sudden you dramatically improve your health, which then lowers your risk for insulin resistance, which then makes diabetes disappear. That's incredible. At the same time, What's likely to happen is that your, your risk for all these other chronic diseases also goes down, and that is going to have a, uh, a follow-up effect to increase your longevity, a.k.a. lower your risk for all-cause mortality. So from a logical perspective, I can easily argue the answer would be yes. If you want some actual research on that, I could dig it up for you, but I don't have it right in front of me at this moment.
1: All right, gentlemen, here is some uh, undisputed facts here is that an estimated 13% of all adults here in the US have diabetes. More than 10% know that they do. The others don't even have a clue, which makes it all the more dangerous, but it also makes the work that you two are doing at mastering diabetes all the more important.
0: Uh, Robbie, what do you guys have going on right now? So if you want help reversing insulin resistance, lowering your blood glucose, gaining energy, reaching your ideal weight, getting rid of that brain fog, we want to help you. We want to work with you. So we have a personalized coaching program that's designed to help you where you're at, what your goals are, the challenges you have, and we guarantee your success. So anybody who enrolls in our coaching program, we absolutely 100% guarantee you're going to get the results that you're looking for. And I don't know if other programs that are doing that, that's how confident we are in what we do. And so you can simply apply by going to our website, MasteringDiabetes.org, click on personalized coaching, and we're happy to help you out. So, you're going to fill out a form and we're going to talk to you on the phone. We're going to figure out what is the best program for you, what coach should you work with, what time of day is good for you to have these personalized sessions, and we're going to support you every step of the way. So, fill out the form, apply for coaching, and we want to help you. You guys
1: walk the walk, you talk the talk, both living with type 1 diabetes and thriving. So, I want to thank you both very much for being here today. It's just been a real treat.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Chuck. This is always my pleasure to talk with you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion in the world of diabetes, but it doesn't have to be confusing. So anytime we can shed some light on it, we're happy to. And by the way, congratulations, uh, proud new papa, Mr. ha. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. If she wasn't sleeping right now, I'd, uh, I'd bring her onto the uh, onto this video conference. Uh, her name is Indigo, and she's the cutest little thing in the world. So She thank looks you so
0: much. exactly like Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know about you, but I feel like we just took a bath in knowledge and we have scrubbed away all of the unhealthy. feels so good to be clean. But even though we are all scrubbed up here, there is still a lot more work to be done. That's why we couldn't let National Diabetes Month pass without having this conversation. It was back in 2019 that there was a very widely publicized study. I mean, this thing was cited everywhere and it projected what diabetes rates worldwide would look like in the years 2030 and 2045. And the numbers that they came up with were not good. Their forecast was not good. But unlike the weatherman, we have the power to change this forecast that is the good news now at the time of the study an estimated 9.3 percent of the world's population was believed to have diabetes and according to their projections that number will increase by 25 percent by the year 2030 and then 51 percent 15 years after that by the year 2045 Now the researchers say that there are a number of reasons for this. They say specifically, more cases among children with type 1 diabetes. Especially younger children, they're expecting more type 1 diabetes cases. They're also expecting to see an increase in type 2 cases among both children and adults. And with that specifically, they chalk it up to a lack of exercise and a high fat high-calorie diet. But look, the numbers are discouraging. Those are significant increases. But it is not all doom and gloom. I promise you that because there is so much that we can do to combat this and change our fortunes because evidence shows that diabetes is largely preventable. We can avoid so many of these cases and in a lot of cases, people who already have them can reverse their diagnosis. So when you think all hope is lost, believe you me, it is not. We just have to step up and band together and keep sharing this information that can quite literally make the world a healthier place. You know, it takes a village to do that. And the exam room podcast, the exam roomies, we are that village. So let's get this out far and wide. Please share this show. Encourage your friends and family to subscribe. And if you haven't already left a five-star rating yet on Apple podcast, please do that as well. Let's keep growing into the new year so that hundreds of millions of us around the world can live without diabetes, live those healthier lives. And on another positive note, I also want to say thank you to everyone in Vancouver who came out to the Planted Expo recently. Steven and the crew there did an amazing job putting this event together. Saw so many great faces there, including John Lewis, our friend, the badass vegan. He was there. Rich Roll was there. And this was my first time in Canada. And I was absolutely blown away by how healthy of a city Vancouver was. I mean, I opened up the Happy Cow app and my screen just exploded with vegan options. It was incredible. And everyone there seemed to be so nice. But I think the coolest part for me was having the opportunity to meet the exam roomies who live in Vancouver. Met people from all ages and all walks of life. We're talking teens to grandparents. And the highlight of the weekend for me was meeting one woman who told me that she went vegan after stumbling across a show that I did with Dr. Neil Barnard. And this woman, she was in her late 70s or early 80s and looked as healthy as could be. She said that wasn't always the case, though. And it goes to show that it is never too late to take charge of your health. It is never too late. So don't ever give up on yourself. If you woke up this morning, this could be the day that you finally take charge of your health. Ergo, this could even be the best day of your life And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero for joining us here today. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.